I, I think that there has been a lull in how we've chosen to defend those things we care about, whether they're social or ecological. And that's cyclical. In the 60s, we were ready to burn the place to the ground. And then things became quite comfortable. And now I think we're returning to a point of departure that is impossible to ignore. I'm Jib Ellison, and welcome to 22nd Century Leadership. I'm very excited to introduce our next guest, Chris Tompkins. I first met Chris almost 25 years ago when she moved to a remote valley in a southern Chilean rainforest to live with her new husband, Doug Tompkins, where together they would work tirelessly to become the most important wildlands philanthropists in recent history. As of January 29, 2018, when the current Chilean president signed decrees legally creating over 10 million acres of new parklands in southern Chile, they and their teams of dedicated Chileans and Argentinians have been directly involved in the creation or expansion of 17 parks and over 13.4 million acres of new national parklands in Chile and Argentina. This historic conservation victory in Chile creating five new parks, including two five-star parks created and donated by Tompkins, Pumaline and Patagonia, and the expansion of three other existing parks, is bittersweet because the vision for this network of parks in Chile spanning almost 2,000 kilometers was the brainchild of Chris's husband, Doug, who had presented it to the Chilean president just before he passed away on a kayak expedition in a remote area of Lago General Carrera in December 2015. Chris's story is storybook-like. She was born and raised on a ranch in Southern California, except for a three-year stint in Venezuela. At 15, she met and befriended rock climbing legend and equipment manufacturer Yvonne Chenard, who gave her a summer job working for Chenard Equipment, his climbing gear company. After finishing college in Idaho, where she ski raced competitively, she started to work full-time for what then became Patagonia, Inc., During her 20 years as CEO, Chris helped build Patagonia into a renowned anti-corporation and a leader in the outdoor apparel industry. Recognizing that manufacturing inherently causes pollution, Patagonia has become a model of corporate responsibility, mitigating its ecological impacts and educating its customers about threats to the earth. In 1993, Chris retired from Patagonia, married Doug, and moved to the wilds of southern Chile, where she's been creating national parks, restoring wildlife, inspiring activism, and fostering local economic progress as a consequence of conservation. I got the chance to sit with her for a few minutes in Chile earlier this month in the new Patagonia National Park and recorded our conversation to my iPhone with her dog, Huacho, looking on. Also, 
Full disclosure, I am a proud member of the board of directors of Tompkins Conservation, the umbrella organization that houses all of Chris's philanthropic activities. Hi, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jim. Happy to be here. <laughs> um, we're sitting here at the newly created Patagonia National Park, and uh, congratulations on that. And um, you've been working towards this milestone for 25 years. And I'm, uh, and you've lived down here, you and Doug, um, have been through a lot to get to this point. And uh, I'm, I'm interested in hearing a little bit about, you know, as the arc of the journey, particularly as it relates to the challenges you faced early on and how you overcame them all the way leading to to today. So, so maybe start with a little bit about, you know, your history when you first came down here and what was the kind of the, the current situation and what did you guys do to kind of build towards, you know, this historic event of over 10 million acres, um, you know, put into national park status last week. What happened a week ago with President Bachelet and her government was certainly the work of, of Doug's vision overall and our teamwork together but the teams we've put together uh, in Chile and Argentina in the U.S. Uh, share in the lion's share of whatever success we've had so I just wanted to clarify that. Certainly if you look at the trajectory of our conservation work especially here in Chile which is where it began the the concept of private philanthropy toward conservation, while not new, there are examples of it in the United States, certainly was new here in Chile. The properties that we began to buy, which today are Pumaline Park, were very large. We were uh, called the couple who cut Chile in half because the properties ran from the... Uh, border with Argentina and the Pacific Ocean, people were worried that we were creating a new newish, new Jewish state, uh, uh, a, a new nuclear waste dump for the United States, and, and outrageous things like that, which today, looking back on it so many years ago, you, you as foolish as they were at, at the moment, you understand why people were scared, and, and not scared so much as just concerned that who are these people and why would anyone buy so much land and then say they're going to conserve it? And the only reason that those kinds of accusations calm down is that over time we've said what we said we would do, and we've done it, creating public access for people in every park that we've built, whether it's in Chile and Argentina. And just like always, people begin to trust you because they see that what you said in the beginning is what you have ended up doing. And I think that's just a normal course of accepting new ideas and new strategies into any society. And looking back on it now, as tough as it was in the early 90s, uh, it was completely understandable. So, so as you know, this, one of the themes of this podcast is is about what we call leadership in the 22nd century and and how it is that we are 
slowly but surely beginning to shift consciousness towards a more ecocentric way of viewing the human natural world relationship and really indeed the human to human relationship and and so I'm just interested if you could say more about how and what what devices so you did what you said you were going to do over a period of time but I think I, I in fact I know there's more to it than that what what were some of your early strategies and things that you had to overcome specifically like let, let me give you an example so I know for instance you had some challenges with the salmon industry salmon farms so what what was your how did you kind of overcome that or work through that was it through uh, dialogue with with the people doing these things in bad ways? Was it through the legal means? Was it through public relations? Was it through getting uh, activists together? All of the above, none of the above? Well, there are different parts to that, but I would say in general, conservationists don't want to be activists at the same time because they come into conflict just as strategies. Mm -hmm. Whether it's if somebody's trying to fundraise for their conservation, a lot of funders don't want to see their grantees involved in public fights, whether it's forestry or fisheries and so on. But we have always been activists and conservationists, and we weren't willing to throttle back on that just because it made our conservation work strategically more difficult, which it certainly did. In terms of the... F- the Why? Why did you do that? How, how is that part of this unique story? Because this is truly unique. I mean, I, I think by any, any measure, one could come and look at what you and Doug have done or let's just say not you, but you with your teams and your stakeholders and is, is outrageous in such a short amount of time with such a little amount of financial resources. So do you think that that was, a, was necessary, even though it's unusual and you say it made the conservation side harder? Or Yeah, I think at least our personal strategy for our family foundations was to do both. Mm-hmm. Well, our four legs, conservation, restoration of land, sea, and extirpated species, ag, and activism. So it's a foundational point for us as um, within the foundation. Mm-hmm. And you can't work in conservation easily or honestly without also getting in to issues about dams, about the fisheries, and so on. So if you choose the easier road, which is pure conservation, you are absolutely acknowledging that you're leaving the rest to the side, which ultimately will affect the, the quality of the very conservation you're trying to do in the first place. Right. And let's face it, we love a good fight. Yeah. <laughs> and you're good at it. So, so that's been the, basically the strategy you've employed. Set out a vision, if I got it right. Act consistent with that vision over time so that people can see who are these people from the outside. 
and be willing to, uh, in a sense, act across the spectrum from activism to real working together in partnership with the government, which is what you just had to do for the last number of years. Yep. So, so tell us a little bit more detail about the Root of Parks, this historic uh, event, and, and that collaborative <clears throat> side of having to work with, with the government. Last Monday, January 29th, 2018, we signed the decrees that would create forever five new national parks, enlarge three other existing parks for a total of 10.3 million acres of new national parkland. Our contribution to this was the idea sort of the, the, the vision, the mapping, the, the economic development portion of this idea and present it to the government. And we would donate a million acres of our foundation's land toward this 2.3 million end. And that's what's happened. In the government of President Bachelet and her ministries, we found an unbelievably willing and able partner in this effort. And so we've done it. And when I say we, I mean the, the government, public-private conservation. And it's the biggest of its kind in history. Yeah. And that's, I really credit President Bachelet for taking the leadership role in this because it's one thing to have a big idea but it's another thing to pull them off and in in this kind of work you could never have done something like this unless the president mm -hmm. him or herself was personally motivated to do this because you're driving these massive uh, land use changes right. forward in a very short period of time, which is a permanent change in the status of those lands. And um, so I, I find her leadership in terms of sovereign states, not just within Chile, but worldwide, and she's being recognized for this already. She's created several marine parks, and then, of course, she is... Uh, with us, the author of this uh, recent big announcement, and she deserves that credit. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's another leader of a sovereign state who has so actively verified the fact that while economic prosperity is necessary for human communities, there is no long-term human health and welfare without being in balance with the natural world. And that's her point. And that's our point. So it, it, was, a, it was a tremendously uh, positive opportunity for both Chile and, and our foundations at this moment in time. Yeah. And um, so just... Technically, so so you aligned with the president, and and again, I'm hearing that's essential for something of this magnitude. And then 
you also had did your did you people from your team work in close concert with uh, the ministries on her team? And were they sitting, in a sense, at the same side of the table, working together to try and overcome things? Or was it more of an adversarial, more traditional negotiation? No, we have a, what we called our donation team, really four people, mm-hmm. and then outside legal counsel, who sat with their peers from the governmental side for the last 24 months, every day, they communicated with their peers the 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 complexity of this deal uh, Pumaline Park which is the first park we've we worked on when we um came south to work in conservation was 40 different donations from the family foundation side so every one of those properties has a trail that has to go down before it is prepared and verified and fully documented and accepted and mm-hmm. and donated and so the logistics of of the 10.3 million acres were quite complex and uh they worked together just over 24 months it was very fast we signed the protocol with the president bachelet last march and the end of January, we were signing the decrees. So that is whip, whiplash fast. And again, you have to look at leadership, and especially President Bachelet's example, because it's very difficult to move against what I think is sort of the juggernaut of of the global economic system and the kind of rapaciousness and speed of the expansion of production over natural systems. Right. So to break that bond, mm-hmm. to you have to be a leader who is absolutely willing to act boldly, but also rapidly. Right. Because at any time, if any of this bogs down, there's so many moments when the whole thing can fall apart. Right, right. And you have to have, in Spanish it's called cuero de chancho, pigskin, <laughs> to get these things done because otherwise you probably wouldn't make it. But that it comes back to leadership. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, if you think about the great leaders in human history, some of them were very young and they didn't live very long. So when you dissect the brilliance of Martin Luther King or other leaders who will never be forgotten, at least in modern history, they're the ones who are willing to roll the dice and stay the course regardless of what the circumstances are regardless of their own personal popularity, which in the moment is usually uh, low outside of their constituency. Mm-hmm. So I find leadership today just appallingly weak and, and slave-like, slave to, 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 of course, the globalized economy. Mm-hmm. And... 
that's why leadership now is is so intensely necessary because the power of the sovereign state is 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 losing the battle mm-hmm. at, even at that level. You know, you're also doing a lot of work in Argentina, and you also have a relationship there with the president. Yes. And you have a strong team working in concert with the the lower the ministries at the kind of more technical level. So describe how is it different, if at all, what you're doing over there uh, to what you're doing here. Again, to to produce the same outcomes and and it should be noted that also in this last two years you've had some major conservation victories in in Argentina so maybe tell us a little bit about what what's been accomplished there mm. and and again how have strategically and and tactically have you guys kind of done that it is true that with what's taken place in Chile it sort of overshadows what we've been doing in Argentina, but frankly, uh, some of the more complex work we've done in terms of reintroduction of extirpated species in, mm-hmm. in northeastern Argentina and, and some of the national parks we created over there were, were complex. And on the technical side, you have not so much difference between the desire to create national parks in Argentina as there is in Chile. Even with the changing of the guard as presidents roll in and out, that we've never had too much trouble in that sense. But technically in Argentina, the provinces, much like the United States, are much more independent from the national government. They have more power. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Chile, the power is really central uh, to Santiago and um, a president in Chile can declare a national park. The president of Argentina can declare it, but it has to be ratified in Congress, much like the United States system. And mm-hmm. as we know, especially now in the United States, that sounds easy, but it's quite difficult mm-hmm. depending on the politics of the day. But overall, the the acceptance and actually welcoming hand of the Argentine public and government has been very strong. And we created our first uh, national park in 2003 in Argentina, first coastal national park of the country. So we have a pretty good history there. Uh, We have good working relationships, I think, in both countries. And we're a very transparent team. We're a pretty small team, so it's not hard to get to the people you need to work with. And we have a track record now that what we say we're going to do is most likely exactly what we're doing. And so, so, so what? So, there's Monte Leon, which was the one in 2003. So, what other uh, parks and and sanctuaries in Argentina? Yeah, we'll start at the bottom. Mm -hmm. Monte Leon. Mm -hmm. We we. Uh, let me think. I got to think about this. So There's so many. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's hard to that's that's not it. But it there is. is. <laughs> I, I, it's 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 mind-boggling. But well, we're working on. Uh, we have completed Monteleone. Right. Uh, Perito Moreno, which was a pre-existing park, we donated a significant new section of that park, which was finalized a couple years ago. 
were with another uh, very important conservation group working together to create Patagonia National Park in Argentina, which is contiguous to the park we're sitting in here today, which is on the Chilean side. Then going north, uh, Iberá National Park, which is one of our flagship parks, and that's where the species reintroduction programs are going on, and jaguars, macaws, giant anteaters, uh, pompous deer, peccaries, uh, a lot of work going on up there, which for us was groundbreaking Mm -hmm. for our own sense of what did it mean to restore an ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then Impenetrable National Park, Aconquija National Park, which we've been involved in. So, and then most recently, marine parks, which is yes, uh, yes. <laughs> About a year and a half ago, I decided that uh, we have so many of our terrestrial parks that are coastal. Mm-hmm. For twenty years, I've been looking out into the sea and wondering how 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 do you take marine systems and try to play a role in in bringing back health into those systems, which as Sylvia Earle has told, told us, you know, they're in, they're in climatically bad shape. Mm-hmm. And so we have been working on that like crazy in Argentina, and we have two pretty sizable marine national parks that have been approved by the president, but they still have to go through the same system that the terrestrial parks do. They need to they need to go through Congress and be ratified. But we're headlong into the marine protected areas. No take is our kind of our standard. The gold standard. Yeah, we hope it's always the gold standard. So um, so what's, well, there's, I have two questions. I'm gonna ask one first. So, um, So what's the role, as you said earlier, it's a monumentous, or a monumental decision for a government to take a step to create a national park because, as you said, it, it forever takes land out of production in the traditional way. But I know that part of your conversation and actually part of your work, particularly to date in Argentina, has been on the kind of building local economies, mm-hmm local development in a sense in harmony with and in support of these wild places. So maybe speak a little bit about your vision and, and, and your work work on that front. Because I know that also is part of this concept of the network of parks mm. or the root of parks here in Chile. The first thing we should probably talk about is the, is the clarity we have as a conservation team that if the communities surrounding conservation lands don't find some sort of societal benefit from these protected areas, it's very hard to imagine that they'll exist a hundred, certainly probably not 200 years from now. Mm-hmm. And I believe that. I think that the pressure on natural resources is growing leaps and bounds every year. So when I look out into the future, one of the big necessities I see is protecting those areas that already exist 
much less trying to develop new ones. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, the key element to that is that the people around these parks are the ones who defend them because they create local pride, they create local economies. Kids stop leaving these small towns after they've finished high school because there's no future in them. They start staying because in the towns themselves, there is an econo a new economic driver that's legitimate, that it's with intention and so on. So that's, that's the first thing, is I, I think it's a, it's a key partnership between the parks and the communities that they be mutually beneficial to one another. Mm -hmm. So that, that is the base for everything we do in communities. And it's really that. Mm -hmm. And we, especially me, <laughs> I would hate to see any of the territories and communities around any project we've been involved in become just tourist towns. Right. I think that's the most boring thing possible. I keep using poor Moab, Utah as an example because the few times I've been to Moab, just one giant mountain biking scene. Mm -hmm. The ranching community has been subsumed by lycra-wearing, helmet-ridden beasts, you know. <laughs> I don't, I wouldn't want to live in a place like that that's just tourism, a transitory mm -hmm. social structure. So I hope that wherever we're involved, that whether it's ranching or it's ag or it's Whatever it is, that the parks provide a complementary economic driver to these areas, but nothing is subsumed by it. Right. So you've done so much in so little time. What, what are some of your ideas for the next, the next chapter? What, what, what's next for Tompkins Conservation? What's next for you? In broad brush strokes. We've vision? talked a lot about it. Uh, I, I have to say, and it's not an excuse, but just getting to this donation of January 29th took every amount of jet fuel that any of us had. This, this was, it may be historic, but it was also historically tough to realize. So be that as it may, we have taken days in between uh, this process and sat down with maps and the best of the best of our team and really said, okay, where do we go from here if this goes through? Because you never know until the last second whether it's going to go or not. What, how can we do what? Two things. Our experience our successes, our failures, I consider to be all assets that Tompkins Conservation holds. So whatever we do is building off the first 25 years. We're not going to turn our backs on that because that's a huge asset. So looking at what we know terrestrially in the Southern Cone, we're not going to work outside of the Southern Cone. Mm -hmm. All our relationships are here and... Um, Though Doug and I 
have had a complete gypsy life since we started working down here, bouncing from project to project. Still in all, there is an area that we concentrate on. That's not going to change. We know some of the legislative things we're very interested in, and they vary between countries. We're very keen on developing the definition of what, what does a binational park mean? Until mm. uh, which point can you really develop systems, management and otherwise, that really knit the biotic communities back together again where they've been sort of split by borders. Very interested in marine protected areas on a big scale and still very interested in activism. I think if, if anything, people will see us get back involved in, in, with a much louder voice in areas that we think need to be fought if I was working in the United States today, I'd be, I'd chain myself to the fence at the White House over Bears Ears and Staircase Escalante and mm -hmm. the concept of public lands today. I mean, there is so much to be done. As you see conservation areas under attack, and it's not just the United States, it's mm -hmm. all over the place. So. So here we are, 2018. Um, there's a lot of, you know, we just spent, you and I just spent a, a week with a bunch of young, enthusiastic uh, people, you know, really the next generation of leadership uh, in these areas. You know, what, what advice do you have for the next, next round of, of young leaders everywhere? who are interested in creating a harmonious relationship between people and, and the natural world? It's a good question. And depending on what day it is, my answer might vary. I, I think that there has been a lull in how we've chosen to defend those things we care about, whether they're social or ecological. And that's cyclical. In the 60s, we were ready to burn the place to the ground. And then things became quite comfortable. And now I think we're returning to a point of departure that is impossible to ignore, whether it's climate change, or watching human societies in Northern Africa or wherever they are lose their access to water, um, urban peoples who are dying of, of poor air quality and water quality and so on. So I hope that this is an age of activism. And if you're working in media, you're you become a fighter. I remember um, David Brower, who of course was one of the great leaders of the environmental movement decades ago. Before, just before he died, he was asked, would you do anything differently with your life now having the chance to look back on it over 
maybe 90 some years. And without hesitation, he said, I would have fought harder. And I've kept that as a kind of beacon for my own life because what he was saying is that life shouldn't be a popularity contest. Don't worry about having unpopular points of view at a cocktail party. What you should worry about is at the end of your life, what's the sum total of things that you did that were honorable, that had nothing to do with you, but that you were driven by some other compass that has everything to do with all sentient beings. And uh, I've forgotten who said this, but Doug used this a lot. If you're not an activist, that means you're an inactivist. <laughs> and who wants to be that? <laughs> so we have been with these younger generation climbers, some of the top climbers in the world for this last week, laughing and, and uh, running up and down mountains out there. But if you talk to each one of them, they, whether it's through their work at Geographic or where they're, wherever they are, they're on these messages. Mm -hmm. They are. And they see the front line of this kind of tragic and cataclysmic um, cliff that we're sort of trending toward. And uh, that's why I love them so much. Besides the fact that they just love a wild life, they're preparing themselves to defend that. And that to me is an exquisite combination. Perfect. Well, that's a great place to <laughs> conclude our conversation. Thank you so very much, Chris, for taking the time. And thank you for your work. And, and I also wanna acknowledge your uh, husband, Doug, here, uh, uh, an old friend of mine and your husband of 25 years uh, for being such a leader mm. and a mentor to me and to, to so many. Amen. I would also like to say, since I don't think you'll say this on your own, is that when I say we and our, you are actually a member of that. I don't know if your listeners know that you're on the board of Tompkins Conservation, and especially over the last two years, you've been um, unbelievably uh, active in your leadership with us to, to realize these things. So just full disclosure. Full disclosure. Okay, thank you. We'll see you, uh, see you on the see you top outside. of the mountain. See you outside. <laughs> Bye-bye.
perfect.